Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Today we have a guest speaker. He's been here several times before and he's coming to us from Redemption Gateway. His name is Seth Trout. Please welcome him. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Seth. I'm from Southeast Valley, kind of Southeast Gilbert, uh, about two hours door to door this morning, but it's good to be here with you. I've been here before. Last time I was here, I broke the table. You might remember that. Uh, most memorable thing that you heard that day was I broke the table, um, but I'm back and I'm not going to break the table because they put it on the stage already for me. So uh, there you go. But I have a wife. We've been married 10 years and two kids. They are, one turns four in a couple weeks and one is about one and a half. And so that uh, dominates a lot of my uh, social life, uh, whether I want it to or not, is uh, the little kid life. Last Yesterday, I was at a four-year-old birthday party, uh, which is, uh, uh, it was fine. You know, that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> my, my, my general rule of thumb for my own children is like, uh, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, therefore we won't have kids' birthday parties, because I don't want to have to invite other people to this thing that they're not going to, like, have a good time at. But my, now my kid, so far we've had, like, we've been a no birthday parties family, but now that my kid is four, it's like, we got to kind of bite the bullet and do the birthday party thing, and it was, it's fun getting to see my little kid carry a present in for the first time. You know, it's like as wide as him, as tall as him, and he comes walking up with the, the present to the birthday party yesterday, and we had picked out, he had helped pick out a toy. It was his favorite toy. We bought a new one to give to this other kid, this little rocket launcher thing where he jump on it, and then the rocket, because the air pressure shoots up in the air. Uh, it's mostly like a climb over the neighbor's fence and get the rocket game is what it actually <laughs> ends up being. Uh, so it's a game for me. It's not a game for him. And so we... Uh, so we give it to this kid, and so he, he got it all. We got it all wrapped, and he helped, he kind of helped wrap it. AKA, he put a piece of tape on, and he brings it up to his friend, and he's giving it to him at the birthday party, and he goes, "It's a rocket launcher," you know, and he just, and he can't even, can't not tell the secret. It's a rocket launcher, you know, and and I don't know if he doesn't fully understand the like the gift thing, or if he's just genuinely really excited, but that's. Um, how it, how it goes. And I think about like our ability to be full of anticipation and excitement and looking forward to and how the older you get, generally that's one of the things that kind of just gets damped down bit by bit, right? Fortunately for my four-year-old, so far his life has been virtually all up and to the right. Not been a tremendous deal of loss or suffering, at least none that he can really comprehend. Like, we've lost family members, but he can't, like, when he was two and a half, when that happened, his ability to connect the dots didn't really happen yet. And so, at some point, he'll look back and realize the loss. But generally speaking, it's been all, so it's just full of anticipation, and there's no attempt to protect himself from hope. There's no attempt to conceal his excitement 
because he's yet to be severely disappointed. And when Christ tells us to, uh, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, I think that's a big part of it, is we need to learn to, to regain and rediscover the eager anticipation of good future things. Like our, our cynicism, our suffering, our disappointment tends to kind of grind us down and make us less excited about when Christ comes back and makes all things new because there's a piece of us that's like, yeah, it'll be good, but will it be as good? Yeah, it'll be exciting, but will it be what I hoped it for? You know, I, I remember growing up in the church and you, you, you hear about like biblical teaching on like sex and you should wait till you get married and then just like praying that Jesus would not come back so that I could get married, you know? And you're like, I don't know how good it's gonna be when Jesus comes back, but I don't wanna be disappointed, so please wait until after I get married. And so there's like this, this like feeling of, I, don't, I can't even totally wrap my mind around what it'll be like when Jesus comes back to earth, but I'm already preparing to it feeling like I'm missing out on stuff. I'm already preparing it to feel like not as, not as possibly good as I could hope it'd be. And so in my, in my you know, teenage foolish naivety, I'm like praying, like, Jesus, don't come back until after I have the chance to do all the good things in life, like um, buy a house or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And then, then as you get older you know, and you, you see the suffering and the conflict and you have moments where you pray for Christ to come back, but you also am like, but I would love to you know, walk my child down the altar, so wait until after that. You know, or I would love to be able to pay off my house and do the Dave Ramsey debt-free scream, so wait until after that. You know, I would love to, I would, there's all these things that you look forward to and the idea that Christ might come back and steal your joy from you or steal your excitement from you. It, it, there's still like, we, our hope is still too anchored, our excitement is still too anchored in the this-worldly stuff. And I think one of the gifts to us we get as a church to help us be shocked out of this, uh, this worldly sense of hope is the book of Revelation. And we've been teaching through the book of Revelation at my uh, church, and I want to share a couple of things from Revelation 1 with you all this morning about how beautiful it's going to be, how powerful it's going to be, and how actually the Lord Jesus coming back is going to be a radical experience of his love. Right. I, the other thing that I kind of internalized, I'm not going to say I was taught this, but I'm going to say I at least heard this and internalized it, was this general sense of like the first time Christ comes, he comes as a lamb and he serves sinners and he's compassionate with the sufferers and his heart breaks for what breaks our hearts. But the second time Christ comes, he's gonna come as a lion and with the sword and he's gonna destroy and you should be a little bit afraid. And I think that is partially true, but I think Revelation 1, the beginning of this book about the end is actually gonna show us actually radically a beautiful picture of Jesus and how the second time he comes back, he's still going to be the same lamb he always was. He's still going to be the compassionate, kind, gracious, merciful, beautiful person that attracted both sufferers and sinners. He's still going to be that person when he comes the second time and he's still the person we should look forward to being with. 
So I'm going to read a couple of sections out of this, and I hope you can follow along with me in Revelation 1 if you'd like to. I'm going to flip to Daniel 7 a bit here. Uh, But this whole concept of love is critical for us if we're going to be loved by Christ and try to love like Christ. Getting to the grips of how this actually functions, how this plays out, is a big deal for us. So the book of Revelation starts uh, like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slave what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and testimony about Jesus Christ and all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed. That means me, not you, because I'm reading it. So there you go. Um, and those who hear, oh, there's, there's you. So those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed also because the time is Near. One of the beautiful things about the book of Revelation is that the blessing comes for those who read, those who hear, and those who keep or those who obey, and not necessarily those who understand all the details. If you ever try to read the book of Revelation, you kind of try to understand all the details and you realize it can't be done, I lose my mind. But the blessing is, uh, this is for the blessings for people who hear, who read, and those who keep and obey. And so uh, good news for us is we don't have to understand all of it, we just have to obey all of it. So it says, John, to the churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is the one who was and the one who is coming, Uh, that he is outside of time and he's present in time. He doesn't just know the future, he exists in the future. He doesn't just know your past, he, he was in your past. He's not just present with us in the moment, but he's present with all moments. You talk about trying to trust someone who knows all things. Like we tend to think Uh, This is like one of our deepest fears as people is that people will like me at a distance and then when they get to know me, they will no longer like me. Right, it's this this fear of being known, this fear of being exposed. That's vulnerability. Is and that's where the, like the idea of shame comes from. That people might see the parts of me that I've been trying to conceal, and when they see those parts of me, they'll walk away from me. That is shame. It's this fear of rejection based on reality. That there's a part of you that it is not. It is more difficult to show. And so we think sometimes. Either one of two things. One, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But uh, that's somehow rooted in his like uh, blind naivety about what I actually think and feel. And so we pray, we cover up our prayers, we, we polish our prayers, we uh, pray half-hearted, churchy things that sound right because we're kind of trying to do PR with God, uh, trying to make sure he thinks the right things about me. Or we think that God actually doesn't love me, uh, he just says he loves me and he's lying and so uh, I kind of have to, I can't really trust him to tell me the truth because who would love me because I know me and I don't love me. And so we're either doing image management with God or we are doing uh, lie, lying management with God. Yes, God's all powerful, but I can't really trust him because he lies or I can't really be known by him because uh, he doesn't really know me. And one of these things this text is saying is that all of your past, all of the things that you have done that are to some degree worthy of being embarrassed about, Christ was there. Can't hide it from him. Stop trying. Not only that, but all the things that were done to you, the suffering you've encountered and experienced because of the things that, the sins of other people. 
right? Even the huge narratives in the book of scripture are less about God saving people from their sin and they're about God saving people from the sins of other people. That's the book of Exodus, that the oppression that results from other people's sin, God is saving people from that sin too. That's liberation. And so both the things that have been done to you that cause shame and the things that you've done that cause shame, Christ was there. He's been there for all of it. There's no secrets. I promise you he understands. And then also all the anxieties and fears and concerns we have about the future. They are not future to God. He's present to them in the same way that you're present in this moment. He's unlimited, he's unbound. God is not nervous about the future because he knows it and he's in it. That's not to say it's not without difficulty, that's not to say it's without disappointment, but it is to say that the one who's revealing himself to us is fully present in all of time, in all places, in all spaces. And that is terrifying on the one hand. What absolute power. Like nobody gets more scared of people than powerful people. Like if I said you have a meeting with someone, turns out it's the CEO of your company and it's at 4 p.m. on Friday. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh gosh. Oof. You know, there's no agenda. You know, just gotta come to the meeting. Like we're afraid of powerful people. Why? Because powerful people uh, control our future, it feels like. The boss at work, he, like what his opinion matters more, what her opinion matters more. Like what they think about me has a huge weighing on my future. Like uh, if I'm gonna meet with a, a politician who's legislating on some matter that's close to my heart and affects my family's um, way of life, like then, then that person matters to me a ton because their, their perspective, their opinions, their strength to create the future matters a ton. And so power is scary. And so often, even in current times, we demonize power. We assume that people with power have somehow got it illicitly or poorly, and so we have this instinct to always side with a powerless person. But I want us to understand that as long as we have the instinct to side with the powerless, we will always be on the side against God because God is the powerful one, the most powerful one. And that power gets scary, that power is intimidating. In the first revelation we see of Christ in the book of Revelation of Christ is that he is outside of time and he's speaking from his throne. That he is the most powerful person you could think about. He's the highest in the hierarchy. He's spanning time. He's got the most seniority and he's gonna outlast you and he has the most ability to control your life than anybody else. Now, if we think rightly about power, that power means power creates control, then we should be a little bit afraid of this God because he is the most influence, most input, most authority over my well-being in the future, and he seems powerful. And here's what's crazy. It says, look, he's coming with the clouds. It's verse seven. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. Okay, so this person to whom glory and dominion forever and ever the one who's outside time, who's um, present in all moments, everywhere, all the time, who has dominion, he's king over a kingdom, that we hear about this person who was pierced, who people mourn over him. 
goes on to say, verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, who was, who was, who is, who was, and who was to come, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. That Revelation 1, 1 through 8 is all about this person who is Almighty, that could be translated Omnipotent, outside of time, and he's pierced, and he's wounded, and people grieve on behalf of him. And this paradox of woundable power is presented to us about Jesus. That we should be afraid of him and we can trust him because he's woundable. That he's totally unlike us and he bleeds when he's poked like us. That he's over and above and outside and also there is an occasion, a moment within history in which he was wounded that causes grief. I'm gonna read a couple sections here out of Daniel 7. And I want you to uh, uh, close your eyes and visualize this. This is Daniel 7, apocalyptic picture. So there's two pictures I'm gonna give you here. Picture one is of the ancient of days, that is God. Daniel sees this vision. So you can imagine with your eyes closed or you can just look at me, that's fine too. um, I kept watching, thrones were set in place in the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened, the books were opened. The Ancient of Days, so you can open your eyes. So let's, let's see this together. So he's got this throne that's sort of like a wheelchair. Fire, fire, fire comes to these times. He kind of looks like Gandalf after he comes back in the third Lord of the Rings. And there's, yeah, he comes back in the second one, sorry. I was thinking about the Hobbit and then the other thing. Uh, it's the seventh one if you count all the Silmarillions, you know, so anyway, so the, the uh, thousands, so there's millions, so in Greek, the biggest, uh, you have 10,000 is the biggest number in Greek, and so like, this is one of those sections that's kind of in Greek, 10,000, it's like, so millions, river of fire, white, so this is, a, this is a picture of God, this kind of throne that moves on wheels, like a chariot slash throne, um, like this. This, is a, this is Daniel's vision of God. Okay, now we're gonna get a second picture. The second picture is of the Son of Man. So you can close your eyes and visualize with me again here, the Son of Man. So two more verses. And then I saw one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those people of every nation and language should serve him, his dominion and everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So two pictures, one of the Messiah, the Son of Man, who is human, and one of the Ancient of Days, the eternal Uh, a picture here, so God and man. And so then what we see is a couple pictures in Revelation of of this. So it says, look, he's coming with the clouds. That's son of man language. Every eye will see him. Dominion forever and ever, son of man language. That's verse six. Alpha and Omega, one who was and is to come. The Almighty, 
That's Ancient of Days language. Then what it says uh, in verse 12, it says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, Son of Man language, dressed in a long robe, that was Ancient of Days language, and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, Ancient of Days language, white as snow, and his eyes like fire, fiery flame, Ancient of Days language. His feet were like fine bronze, and it's furred in a, fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters, seven stars in his right hand, double-edged sword came his mouth, face shining like sun that is the fire at midday. So, imagine if you're John, you're having this revelation, and because you're like John, you're this remarkable Old Testament Bible student, because you're Jewish and it's the first century, and then the Spirit comes and gives you this picture of this person that is like the Ancient of Days, God, and like the Messiah, the Son of Man, humans, and this picture you're given is this both thing. What you have here in Revelation chapter one is this image, this picture that's meant to prove to us, to argue to us, that Jesus is the Ancient of Days and he's the son of man, he's fully God, he's fully man. He is power matched with limits. He is the eternal one present in a moment. He is God and he is man. He is Lord over all, the eternal one, and he's the one sitting on the throne, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he's doing this in this poetic, captivating, beautiful way, and what you've got to see here is that this would have blown the mind of any Jewish person, just like it blew the mind of the early church, is how can someone be fully God and fully man at the same time? How can boundless power be somehow contained within a body that has limits and experiences decay and rolls its ankle and goes through puberty and has to get potty trained and has to uh, deal with the difficulties of human interaction. How can was, is, and is to come be human? And so often, most of the heresies in the first century were somehow denying Jesus' full divinity or denying Jesus' full humanity because our human minds have a difficult time holding those things together. And I think it's our inability or our difficulty in actually holding those two things together, which is what makes us so skeptical of power and so nervous about love that the most powerful could be the most loving scares us. Like I hear people in our church say all the time and they say like, we don't want the pastor to be like a CEO. And I think like what they're saying is CEOs are powerful people, therefore they don't care about people. (laughs) Therefore they're not accessible, therefore they're not available. Therefore, like, and, but like imagine if every time you heard about a CEO you thought about a shepherd who's the CEO of the flock leading. Like, so we, we tend to be so nervous about power because our capacity to think about power actually serving in love doesn't really exist. And so this idea of God being fully, or Jesus being fully God and fully man actually begins to undermine and chip away and challenge 
at our understanding of power. Because here's the deal, is if you hold to a naturalistic worldview, if you hold to a perspective on life that all that exists are selfish genes that are trying to pass themselves on, then you have to have a perspective that power comes before love. Because for love to exist, it requires an other, requires an object, requires someone to see and to care and to connect. And so before, if I believe in naturalism, something has to happen and then there's something else that can be loved, whether it's the Big Bang or something like that. But also if I believe in the God of Islam or in the God of um, Judaism, uh, you have a monotheistic God that is by himself. And if that's the case, then he cannot love until he exercises his power so that he has something to love. So power comes before love. But if you hold in this biblical Trinitarian perspective that the Ancient of Days is tripersonal, it is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then you see that before he even exercises his power, he is loving. This is why John 1, 4, or John 4 says, 1 John 4 says that God is love. It's because God is Trinity. God has eternally been relating. He has eternally been loving. And so actually love becomes before power in the biblical worldview because God is love and out of the overflow and abundance of that love, he exercises power and is generous with it. And so in this picture of the ancient of days of God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, it challenges our fear of power, and it challenges our attempts to withdraw from power and says, well, if love came before power, then maybe power can be safe and maybe I can go to God with who I am in actuality. So you imagine, like in the book of Isaiah, they see God and it's, woe is me, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips, and there's this tendency to hide. Like I think that all of us, if we're honest, if God in the flesh showed up in the room, we would kind of go, there'd be this turn. And that's exactly what happens to John. So he sees this vision of the Son of Man, the ancient days combined, face shining like the sun in midday. I don't know if you've like gone and tried to look at the sun in midday, um, but it's painful, it hurts, you wanna turn away. You can't do it for very long, maybe a second. And what it says in verse 17, Revelation 1:17 is, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Boom, John hits the ground. You know, my daughter, one and a half, I don't know where she learned it, my son never did this, but her fo- form of tantruming is she just melts to the ground, lays on the ground, pounds on the ground, and it's like, no, you can't uh, jump off that cliff. <sighs> you know, I don't understand how one and a half year olds work, but it's, she just lays on the ground, and you're going like, what's, ha-? and you're almost always are telling her no for her good, for her benefit, you know, no, you can't. Cut your fingers with the scissors. No, you can't. It's like, but I want to. You know, and she's lays on the ground. And there's always these moments where as a dad, you're going, do I, you know, lay down and pick her up? Do I say, pick yourself up? Is it like, when is it, you know, what's the right uh, dad move here? But I'll tell you, um, this one at least kind of challenges me. So he lays on his feet like a, lays down at his feet like a dead man. And it says, next part of the verse, and he laid his right hand on me. Now just visualize with me. If someone was laying on, on the ground here like a dead man, and I'm not Captain Extendable Arms, 
you know, I have to get on my knee and touch them, right? I have to bend down. If someone's laying on the ground, I have to bend over, stoop. He says, and he laid his right hand on me. Laid his right hand on my shoulder. This is the first action of Jesus at his second coming, is that he's stooping down and kneeling and touching. And then he says, do not be afraid. Now, the motion, the instinct to comfort, to reassure, to serve, to stoop, to kneel uh, is insane when you think about this being the most powerful being in the history or possibility of the whole universe. That the first picture we get of him in this revelation of the end is that he is kneeling to serve a scared person. That he's kneeling to reassure a scared person. He doesn't stand at a distance and say, what are you doing? Stand up, you're embarrassing yourself. He doesn't say, you fool, I'm gracious, why, why are you full of shame? He doesn't say, you're being emotional, when you found self-control, stand on up and we can talk about this. He doesn't say, uh, pick yourself up, what's your problem? I, what, what more do I have to do to convince you that I'm kind? Uh, he doesn't shame or yell or correct or rebuke from a distance. His first instinct is to kneel, reassure, comfort, encourage, care. This is God. If I, as a father, think I'm above stooping to comfort a tantruming two-year-old, or reassure, then I, I'm misunderstanding my position, especially related to God's position. Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, eyes on me, look. You know, now he's inviting John, see me, turn, look. I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Meaning, that which you are most afraid of, I am in control of. Death and Hades represents the end of possibility. Death and Hades represents suffering for my sin. Death and Hades is the, the worst possible outcome like so many of us, like we're, we're constantly like the worst possible outcome type people, right? And when you actually think, what is the worst, worst possible income? It's death in Hades. It's the, the place of torment. And Jesus is saying to all of us, both on a big picture and a small picture, that what you're most afraid of, I'm in control of. I have the keys. I drive that car. It goes where I want. Nothing's outside of my control. And this picture of the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God, even when he's thinking, I'm gonna go back and give him one more book before I you know, see him in a couple thousand years or whatever, he's going, like he's on purpose saying, the first image I want them to have of me when they read this book is that I am the all-powerful, ancient of days man who kneels, comforts, assures, and encourages scared people.
There's a lot about the way that Christians handle fear that's just really bad. It's false evidence appearing real. Jesus doesn't say death and Hades aren't real. He's saying I'm in control of them. There are very reasonable things to be very afraid of. There are real enemies. There is real evil. There are real negative possibilities. Jesus is not minimizing our fears and calling them silly. He's saying, I am in control of even that which you're afraid of. Trust me. Not only are we bad at fear, I think we're bad at emotions in general. We want to, like, we, whenever someone's saying, I'm emotional, or you're emotional, we're assuming those are negative words. Not like to be emotional is to relate, to be human, to even possibly be Christ-like who weeps and rejoices and is moved with compassion. Like we're, we're, and the first picture we see of Christ is him not shaming or rebuking or scolding or even correcting, but serving, caring, and loving. And so here's the deal. Until you can wrap your mind around the fact that this is how Jesus treats you, you will be severely inhibited in your ability to treat others like this. So often we think the call to love is like, I better do it or else Jesus won't do it to me. But it's the opposite. Actually becoming increasingly convinced that Jesus loves you is the best strategy you have at becoming a loving person towards others. And so the images in the book of Revelation are called to uh, stir up our imagination, to rethink the picture that we have of Jesus, and to literally visualize ourselves afraid and on the floor and Christ kneeling down and comforting us when we're most afraid so that we might then faithfully represent him as we go to comfort others who are most afraid. That we have this gift that we're taking to our four-year-old birthday party of Jesus, and the more we see it as a good gift, Jesus loves you. Don't have to wait to open it. But until we actually experience that it's a good gift ourselves, we're not gonna see it as a good gift of other people. We're gonna see sharing our faith as like some duty so that we can feel good about ourselves. So, because if I don't, then yeah. But I have to be, the most important thing you'll ever do as a Christian is become increasingly convinced that Jesus loves you and serves you like he does in this text. Like I love when my four-year-old goes, I love this toy, I wanna give that kid that toy because that's a picture of how we work as humans. That we are evangelists of the things that we love the most without having been told to do it. That the more we experience the love of Christ serving us when we're at our most afraid, the more when we see afraid people, we'll say like, let me love you, and let me tell you about the one who loves me. And that's good news. Jesus loves you. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you'd uh, reinvigorate our sense of how much you love us, uh, capture our hearts, and enable us to begin to comprehend the depth and breadth and majesty of your affection for us, and that it's not just an affection, but it's an affection that leads to action. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
So we're going to prepare to take communion today. Um, we've sang together, and we've prayed together. We've listened to teaching together, all because of someone who is most powerful and more worthy uh, than anyone else in all of time. And communion is one of those things that brings us together and unites us as one in that person uh, because of the way that he, being most powerful, turned into a man and was weak and served us and died on a cross for us. It's the culmination of all of Earth's history at that one point where we went from being separated to united in Christ. He bowed down and he touched us and took away our sin. Um, so they're probably going to play a little bit of music. If you want, go ahead and come forward and take the elements. They're here, here. There's a couple at the back for you guys to take. I would encourage you because communion is not only a symbol of uniting us to Christ, but it's uniting us to each other. If you can, take communion with somebody that you're sitting next to today um, and just try to recognize how Christ in that one moment brought all of those things together and made it whole and good. Um, there'll be, my wife and I will be at the prayer table up here if anyone needs prayer. And uh, just do that. Come up and take it as you're ready. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.